0: welcome to the GeoTrek podcast. This is an exciting episode for those of us involved, disaster science community, recovery, insurance. We have Eleanor Kitzman as our special guest today. She's a lawyer, insurance executive, and entrepreneur, and has been the insurance commissioner in South Carolina and Texas. Eleanor lives in Austin, but is a native of Houston. As a former insurance commissioner in two coastal states, she knows a lot about coastal property insurance and is currently working on a program to integrate pre-event loss prevention and insurance to increase resiliency of homes, to hurricane damage, and to decrease insurance premiums. Eleanor, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Eleanor, we both live in Texas. Texas is a place with a lot of disasters, right? We have hurricanes and coastal flooding on the coast. Uh, We we have our tornadoes, hail, wildfires out there near where you live now in Austin. Uh, We get a lot of disasters around here.
1: Now we're getting winter storms.
0: That's right. This last year, we had the snow and ice storm and the frigid temperatures as well.
1: Yeah, which actually that winter storm is so far is the largest, in, in terms of the dollar amount of damage done, has been the, the largest catastrophic event, certainly in the state.
0: Yeah, that was tremendous, the impact both on commercial, industrial, and, and also on just residential and, and public health as well. Yeah.
1: Well, basically shut the state down for a week.
0: It was just, I think, blindsided a lot of folks. Do you feel in a way that a state like Texas is more adapted to deal with hot weather disasters like hurricanes as opposed to Arctic you know, outbreaks and things like that? This
1: last winter storm, while it certainly it wasn't the norm, it's not the first time it's happened. I think 10 years ago, there was a storm that was not quite as cold, but was very close. And then the power grid failed again, you know, so this wasn't the first time that this has happened. They, they knew what they needed to do 10 years ago to protect against uh, the kind of outages that they had and to weatherize. And they had not done that. And, you know, there's no, these various operators that provide power to the grid. They're not required to to winterize. They're not uh, required to maintain reserves. And so they, they didn't. As far as I can tell, they still aren't. So, I don't know that we're really, you know, any better protected from something like this happening again, except that, you know, maybe somebody, if they see a forecast for, you know, really cold temperatures, that somebody will say, let's make sure we're ready. Although, if they haven't done the kind of preparation, it's really too late by then, but but they may be able to, like, defer some maintenance or things like that that, that might have been scheduled. But each year that goes that we don't have something like that happen, you know, they forget how bad it was. Eleanor, you're
0: right. There always tends to be amnesia. And it's really interesting when we look back in the Texas climatology. The 1880s and 1890s, although it was a long time ago, they had some very severe winter weather outbreaks. Here on the coast, Galveston in this past outbreak got down to 20. Way back in the late 1800s, we got down to eight with 14 inches of snow uh, at one point. Wow. There were actually this cold weather outbreak, at least along the coast, was not the most severe we've seen. It's just, I think we've forgotten about our history, very much like what people do uh, in hurricane country, right? You go to, say, South right. Carolina, and people, oh, we don't really get hurricanes except for Hugo, but you look back at the 1880s and 1890s, yeah. it was it was exceptional.
1: No, people don't know that kind of history, and I think they're, they're kind of programmed to think that, well, it's getting hotter, and therefore, you know, we shouldn't get colder weather. You know, those two things seem seem illogical, that if it's getting hotter that we would be getting colder weather. I know the, the low here in Austin where I was was seven, and I just had no idea how cold seven degrees was. Sure. <laughs> I really didn't.
0: Yeah, at that point, you I didn't have any five degrees below. Yeah, you're 25 degrees below freezing, and it's really, you're starting to see pipes freeze everywhere, right? I would imagine a lot of the damage was from uh, burst pipes, right? That froze yeah. and burst in yeah. houses. So it really was a, a flood damage event as well.
1: There was a lot of flooding, and a lot of people. They'd been told, you know, to to you know to let their 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 faucets drip to prevent freezing. But then, so many people did that that it it, it had an adverse effect on the the water system.
0: Wow so um so this really affected just the ability to really distribute and, and transport water as well. It did. And uh, Eleanor, you really have a passion for looking at systems and really seeing okay, you know, whether it's someone's personal house or a business or how how a system broke down in a disaster. I, I've always admired how you kind of have a larger uh, view of the system. I know you're familiar with a lot of these groups that that go out there and look at how we can respond better and build better. Like the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, IBHS, and these different organizations like that that are looking at ways we can respond better to disasters in the future. Is that something that's been a part of your career all the way through, or just something that developed later in your career?
1: Well, I think it, it really developed when I was uh, insurance commissioner in South Carolina. So even though I'm from Texas, you know, I had ended South Carolina. I was in the insurance business, but not property related. In fact, I was, it was automobile insurance. But then I became the insurance commissioner, and so now I'm responsible for kind of everything, every line of insurance. And South Carolina has a, a large coastline. Of course, nothing you know compared to Texas, but uh, but it was it was large, vibrant coastline. It had there was it's it's different from the Texas coastline. It's mostly kind of a lot of tourism, but there was some industry. There was a, you know the port, the port of Charleston um, is a is a very active port. And coastal property insurance was a problem, you know, that you just don't have the kind of robust availability that you do when you're deciding who to purchase your insurance from that you do if you live inland. And of course, the the premiums are going to be higher, you know, so that was... Was kind of there was an always an ongoing tension with with that. I became commissioner in South Carolina in 2005. You may recall that you know 2004 was the year before the Katrina year. 2005 was Katrina, but in 2004 there had been four major hurricanes that crisscrossed Florida and did some damage in other places. Uh, South Carolina didn't get any any damage, you know, from any of those storms. But then 2005 comes along. And you have Katrina, Rita, and then Wilma that were all, you know, Rita and Wilma, you know, everybody, everybody forgets about them because Katrina was so bad or major storms, you know, themselves. And th- th- those two years combined just really disrupted the insurance financial market. You know, the the, the rating agencies were taking action and, you know, companies were, they, they either needed to inject more capital into the company or they needed to get off of you know, a lot of the risk. And, you know, they they were doing some of all of those things. And it affected both the insurance markets and reinsurance, which is basically insurance, you know, insurance companies. So it meant that we had a real availability problem, people had a hard time finding, uh, you know, insurance on the coast. Um, And then when they could find it, it was very expensive. Uh, rates, you know, were going up. You know, three, four times. You know, what what they had been. There were people who were being uh, canceled by their carriers that they'd been with them forever. I remember this this one couple in uh, in Charleston. They lived. It was the the woman. I think was a nurse. Her husband was uh, did maintenance uh, for the school district. And so they were, they were not wealthy people. They lived in a house that she inherited from her grandmother, and her grandmother had insured it. With Allstate, and then the, the, this couple, when they started living in it, they continued with Allstate, and I'm not—I I'm not, don't mean to pick on Allstate—and you know, I, I think that you know they've never had a claim, and all of a sudden they're being—they're being canceled, and people don't understand that. Understand why that happens, and it's—it's—it's it's, uh, it's hard for people to understand that, unlike most other lines of insurance, that what you were paying in your premium has nothing to do with you or your behavior. It's so much of it is just where you live. So that, that was a, a time when I, you know, I just, I had to learn about it because it was, you know, I needed to try to find a, a solution if there, if, if there was one or what could we do, you know, to stay as the, the market and at least, you know, uh, make sure that people, you know, could get coverage. And that was when it was during that time that I first came to know about IBHS, the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety which is an association. It's a nonprofit research and communications organization that is funded exclusively by the property you know, in, the, in the US. And you know, its mission is to reduce the damage from natural disasters, find ways to you know, reduce the impact of, of natural disasters and they in Hurricane being the the biggest one. Oh that no that's really to.
0: interesting. Uh, you know, you had mentioned it, it sounds like the insurance industry became very reactive after the hyperactive years of 2004-2005 and then it sounds like someone for example in coastal South Carolina even though South Carolina wasn't really hit directly during those years nonetheless they fall into the population of High risk, right? Because they're living right. on the coast in a hurricane zone.
1: Right, and just because you weren't in the path of any of those storms, uh, and you know we see this all the time that you know if if a storm had gone just a little bit further to the east or to the west, and you know the, the difference in impact. know that it would have had and you know there are you know hurricane forecasts and models and all of that but until that storm forms you know either in the gulf or in the atlantic uh, you don't really know what what's what's going to happen and you know once it forms and then you start seeing those spaghetti models and all of that and closer it gets to, to to making landfall those those models come together but, but yeah, it's like, if you are, if you live in a high risk area, even if you have not had a hurricane, a major hurricane make landfall in your area, you know, for many years, you know, there's one school of thought is like, well, then you're more likely to have one pretty soon. You know, it's kind of like your, your time is up. You've just gotten lucky. So it, it does. Yeah. It, it affects the whole market for hurricanes and for wind, windstorm. Uh, you know insurance and reinsurance
0: yeah and like you said just by being part of that population your insurance premium can go skyrocket high as opposed to say auto insurance where if you're not at fault you haven't caused any accidents that's probably less likely to happen
1: right exactly uh because it it, it is based so much on you know your driving you know behavior and maybe where you drive Uh, things that you can control and short of just saying you're not going to live at the coast you know no one can control the weather.
0: You're right, you know, starting with 04, 05, and then obviously 2008, we had Hurricane Gustav in Louisiana and Ike in Texas, and then a whole bunch of storms, you know, in years after that affecting right. uh, Metro Houston, obviously Hurricane Harvey in 2017. In South Carolina, I believe it was 2015, there was a tremendous flooding around Columbia. We've had a lot of disasters and widespread floods over, you know, the past two decades or so. Uh, it seems like there's been more talk in recent decades about, okay, how do we get out ahead of these disasters? How do we build better or try to, you know, prevent these things? What are some insights you could share about, you know, ways, for example, that insurance professionals or, or the, the mitigation industry can kind of work with homeowners or work with people that live in disaster prone areas to kind of help them be more preventative in the first place?
1: Well, unfortunately, you know, there has been a lot of talk Unfortunately, there's not been enough action. It's like, I mean, we know a lot about what to do, and in particular, IBHS, they developed a fortified construction standard that is geared toward you know hurricane and, and severe windstorm activity. Fortified is just it's a, it's based on about twenty years of of research and testing. They have this phenomenal research center. Uh, That is in, uh, it's just south of Charlotte. It's actually in South Carolina, but it's just south of Charlotte. And they literally can simulate hurricane force winds, they can simulate, you know, rain, simulate hail wildfire and so they have developed these these construction standards and there's one for new construction and then there's one for retrofit and when it comes to to wind the roof is the home's primary defense against windstorm damage so you start with the roof if you don't have a good roof on your house it's kind of like don't bother doing anything else don't bother with shutters if you don't have a good roof on your house you know shutters aren't going to help you the these standards are they're available on the website. They're free. Anyone can access them. Any contractor, any roofing contractor, will, will know what to do. Uh, so there's you know nothing there that would be unfamiliar to them. Now what IBHS does is because they actually certify, uh, you know, the house when it gets a fortified roof, it gets a certificate, basically test to that that the roof was installed properly. So there is a third party, uh, an independent third party that reviews the work as it is being done, you know, by that contractor to ensure that it's being done properly. And then after the roof, if you, uh, if you want to do more, you know, then you do all of your doors and windows and all of your openings and things like that. And then there's a third level uh, of Fortified that really is a new construction because it's a, it's the gold standard and it gets into, you know, sort of the foundation and the attachment from the foundation to the wall and the walls to the roof. And it just creates you know, this continuous load path around the house so that it's distributing the energy uh, you know, from a storm uh, you know, more, more evenly. But it, the, the, the roof is the big one. There are estimates that 70 to 90 percent of damage from hurricanes is roof related, and that includes both the damage to the roof covering itself, but then also interior damage from water uh, that comes in through the roof and one of the 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 great things about a fortified roof it has a sealed roof deck you know so um even if you have damage to that roof covering water is not going to come in you know to, to to that home unless a tree falls on the on the roof
0: you're talking about hurricane force winds take a few shingles off and even though water's getting underneath that shingles there's a seal underneath there to kind of protect that water you know prevent it from really getting farther into the house yes
1: and that is if water gets under those shingles, but water's gonna have a hard time getting under those shingles because first of all, your underlayment and your shingles, you know, are nailed separately. They have separate nail patterns. So you're just creating a much tighter connection between that roof deck and the shingles. And then they use ring shank nails and uh, use more than is usually required by uh, you know, conventional, you know, building code. So yeah, you're just, you know, with with wind and with the roof, it's all about you just don't want the wind to be able to catch anything. And as I'm sure you've seen, I mean, you'll see it, something starts, you know, flapping a little bit and then, you know, it doesn't take long before the, you know, the whole thing goes. So, but yeah, that so that sealed roof deck though then does provide, you know, kind of that final, you know, layer of, of protection.
0: So a roof, I mean, that can be a retrofit, right? Like, so someone oh, like, yeah. Yeah. Up with an established house could say, hey, I want a fortified roof put on my house.
1: Absolutely. What I just see is, is tragic, you know, that like, as we speak, there are roofs being put on in coastal areas. And when I say coastal, I don't mean waterfront. I mean, I'm, I'm talking even Houston that are not fortified. And the incremental cost of fortified is usually less than 5% of the cost of the roof. And every roof has to be replaced eventually. And so there's just no reason for that roof replacement not to be fortified. There is nothing but upside to having a fortified roof.
0: Sure, and I've seen the Fortified program has really been growing in popularity. I think Alabama leads the country right now. Actually,
1: they've got, uh, Alabama does lead the country by, you know, a factor of probably a hundred of all other states combined. And it's really, it's because the state of Alabama really got involved, really embraced the Fortified program and promoted it. And they have a grant program that people can get up to $10,000, but only for Fortified. Uh, And then there were some home builders in the state that built entire subdivisions with fortified roofs. The the other thing the state of Alabama did is they required, they mandated that insurance companies had to give an insurance discount, a minimum insurance discount for someone that had fortified. So when these home builders were building these homes and selling these homes, they were able to tell prospective buyers, it's like, yes, this, this home is a few dollars more than the subdivision down the road, but it has a fortified roof and you're going to save money on your insurance. And so Alabama, the combination of all those things, increased the awareness of the program. And so they've got about 26,000 fortified roofs and North Carolina is second. It's only been probably in the last five years that they got involved and they are actually doing some grants and, and promoting fortified through their wind pool. Uh, so they're equivalent of like TWIA, you know, and that's the Texas, uh, you know, wind pool. And But North Carolina, they are up to about 4,000 uh, fortified roofs. Last time I looked, the state of Texas had fewer than 20, and those have all been new construction, and it's because there are a few, you know, kind of engineering and architectural firms, uh, you know, in the state that are aware of fortified and, and are aware of the need to build stronger.
0: Eleanor, could you see something like Fortified under the right conditions and encouragement, you know, growing in a state like Texas? Because I know a lot of people in Texas are like, we're independent, we kind of want to do things our own way. Um, do you think with the right incentives and maybe getting savings back that it could grow yeah, in Texas?
1: Well, I do. I mean, I think the you know, the problem is that most people just don't know about Fortified. No, there, there's no one that has told them about it. Uh, Most people, when they, you know, go to replace their roof, you know, it's either as a result of an insurance claim and they're, or if they uh, have to replace it themselves, they're just contacting, you know, a, a roofing contractor and roofing contractors are not going to try to upsell them, try to sell them something that is more expensive. And even the roofing contractors are not familiar with fortified as a standard. I mean, they, they certainly can look at the fortified specifications and can understand why it's better, but they don't know what it means in terms of insurance and, you know, all of that. So, you know, roofing contractors generally are not telling, you know, homeowners about it. A lot of insurance agents don't even know about, you know, fortified uh, so that's part of the problem. So I do think that it's, you know, having that awareness. And then, you know, the other thing that Alabama and North Carolina have, because they had these grant programs, they had these, these independent inspectors that I mentioned. Well, those people, they have to get certified by IBHS. And there an, there's an expense associated with that. And they have continuing education requirements. And so they're not likely to become certified as evaluators which is what IBHS calls them unless they know that there's going to be a demand for you know for that service well the grant programs in Alabama and North Carolina they create that demand and so these inspectors kind of got on board with it got certified and so they're so you've got that infrastructure to support fortified that you know we don't have in Texas you don't have in in other states with a conventional roof a contractor comes out gives you a bid today and they're putting a roof on your house you know by the end of the week fortified is just not there yet but but it's possible and there are there's are some I think some ways to you know to bring that about and and we don't have to we don't have to wait for uh, you know a grant program because that's probably not likely uh, you know in a state like Texas so it, it really is i think dependent on you know, some private sector initiatives, and one of which, you know, I'm working on, and also using sort of those future insurance savings that that people are going to have if they get a fortified roof, basically to finance, you know, the upfront cost of that new roof. So you make it, you know, more affordable for them. There's actually, there's, there's legislation in Congress right now that would provide for up to a $3000 credit on your federal income taxes for fortified and other qualified mitigation initiatives. So you just think about that that you know if you, you get a $3000 credit on your income taxes, you know that makes fortified more than affordable because that's going to more than cover the additional cost of fortified over and above, you know, a non-fortified roof. South Carolina had something very similar to that, that you got on your state income tax. And uh, that was was very popular. And the roofing contractors, they had a form that they filled out and gave it, you know, to the homeowner after the job was done, said, you know, here's what you're going to need when you go to file your taxes in order for you to get your credit.
0: It seems like an important part of this is passing the, some of those savings on to the homeowner and it it, I thought it was interesting that you said about the mandate in Alabama to give them an insurance savings you know all of a sudden you're getting a system in motion then because people are saying well wait I want to save how do I do that
1: yeah now you know the insurance industry does not like mandates apparently no one does uh, but the insurance industry really doesn't like them and you know and they have a history of you know, sometimes states kind of overreach and the, the mandated discount may be more than the actual savings, you know, the actual loss savings. But uh, I think the industry, this has been in place in Alabama for several years now. I think the, the, the discounts that they're required to give are not excessive and the companies all seem happy to be doing business there. I don't think that's something, you know, that we would see in Texas. And in fact, even in South Carolina, the there there was not the political or regulatory will to require, you know, to mandate, you know, any kind of, of credit. But you have some companies that were offering it. You don't have very many companies in in Texas that are offering fortified discounts, you know, right now. But Again, it's a little bit of you know, sort of you know, chicken and egg, and you kind of have to. All of these things have to come together, kind of at about the same time, or if one thing happens and then it you know leads to another. And uh, I think that if if more homeowners knew about fortified and were asking about it, that it would put some some pressure, uh, you know, on insurance companies to uh, to give that discount because. Really, what you're doing is you're, you're just you're asking the insurance company, it's like, look, I have reduced the risk of loss on this policy. And so a fair premium for this new risk of loss is less than, you know, than what you, you were charging. So it's really about charging a fair rate more than it is about that, that your insurance company is is uh, you know doing you a favor because you have increased you you have reduced uh, the likelihood that they're going to to have a claim.
0: If you that have really sounds like roof. a reasonable argument if you've taken steps to mitigate or m- improve your building that your your losses are likely to be less in the future, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean that that has been proven. I don't think anyone disputes that a fortified roof uh, reduces losses. From hurricanes and windstorm, and in fact, the multiple times it, it's been shown that a fortified roof reduces those wind losses by about thirty-five percent.
0: Hurricanes and extreme wind events are so rare that people's scale maybe isn't calibrated or, or their picture of what it is is really different than the reality. Just one week exactly before we recorded this podcast, Hurricane Nicholas made landfall along the Texas coast near Freeport and Bay City, Texas. Here on Galveston Island where I live, everyone the next day was saying, wow, we took a, a hit from a category one hurricane. And I was looking at the wind observations from Galveston airport and my own observations from being out in the storm. And I, I estimate that the sustained winds reached about 55 miles an hour in Galveston my message to locals is that we were about 20 miles an hour lower than hurricane force winds and people were shocked by that they said you mean that wasn't even a hurricane and it was like no that certainly was not a hurricane and yet we we had a roof just about 15 miles south of me a roof partially blew off uh, basically you could see the sky through the bedroom ceiling and and a, a big portion of it was on the bed you know and I'm thinking wow these were sustained winds in the 50s you know to ha- have a hurricane you need 74 mile an hour winds, I think a lot of people said, wow, that wasn't even a hurricane. Okay, that just recalibrated my scale. Like a hurricane is a lot worse than what I was picturing.
1: Well, and uh, people do need to recalibrate their scale. And we need to be doing more to to help people understand that. And I know, you know, every hurricane season, you know, the Weather Channel, and they talk about, uh, well, you know, don't say things like, well, it's just a category one. Because like you say, I mean, you can get a lot of damage from you know, from what you think of as lower-level storm, I uh, I get frustrated every year. You hear like the Weather Channel or Home Depot, and they put out these you know talk about you know hurricane season is coming. You need to be prepared, and they give you this list, this checklist,
0: and right. they it's you so know, much they focused don't on on batteries and LZ's batteries
1: of- and water and you know snacks and things like that. And you know people need to know that even if, you know, your roof is not leaking, you don't think, you know, you think you have a good roof, you know, a 10-year-old roof is going to uh, incur three times as much damage as a three-year-old.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. So it sounds like roofs do get wear and tear over time from all the sunshine and rain and storms, and so uh, the heat. people need in mean, the heat. Know. Yeah, people need to keep up on that.
1: Yeah, and so you know, and, and all these shingle manufacturers, and you read, you know, these roofing contractors, all that tell you, you know, talk about a fifty-year roof. I can't remember. I was talking to somebody the other day who said they uh, they had a fifty-year roof, and I said, "There's no such thing. There is absolutely no such thing as a fifty-year roof." And and usually when you read the fine print, what they're talking about are some manufacturer's warranty on the shingle. Well, it's, you know, these roofs, the problem with the roof is never that there was a defect in the shingles. They might not have been installed properly. But I mean, to me, that's just, there's just a a lot of kind of marketing hype that goes into that. And people don't really understand, you know, what, what they're getting.
0: Yeah, and then uh, it's really a, a, a complex system. And you're right, Eleanor, you know, as far as uh, seeing some different patterns, the last six hurricane seasons, we've seen a hurricane or a tropical storm or basically a, a tropical system either stall out or move very slow at the coast. I include Hurricane Sally last year. It was Its forward motion was only two miles an hour when it made landfall last September right, in Alabama. Right. But a lot of these two miles an hour, one mile an hour are just stalled out. And it's just dumping tons of rain and just really increasing the wind stress for a long period of time, not only on the roofs, but on the trees. I remember in Hurricane Florence in North Carolina in 2018, just a lot of trees falling from a 70 mile an hour wind because they had three days of rain.
1: Right. Sally is one that it was, in some ways kind of like Nicholas, people went to bed thinking that it was a tropical storm or maybe a one and they wake up and find out that it's a two and it intensified rapidly before it made landfall. And then when it made landfall, it really slowed down. And so, you know, dumped a lot of rain. Um, and then it did a lot of damage in Georgia from some of what I've read is they're, they're intensifying rapidly before they make landfall and they're deteriorating less rapidly as they move inland.
0: Oh, that's and interesting. So, so you're getting more of those inland impacts.
1: You are getting, yeah, you're getting, you know, hurricane tropical force winds well inland, you know, as much as 100 to 150 miles inland.
0: Thanks, Eleanor. This concludes part one of two in our podcast interview with special guest Eleanor Kitzman. We talked about the Texas freeze, which produced more insurance claims than any disaster in Texas history. We talked about the history of how Eleanor got involved in insurance and disaster resiliency work. We talked about the fortified program, what it is and how people can finance it and how fortified roofs are actually built a lot stronger and more durable so that people would have less claims and less damage to their homes. We talked about calibrating our scale when it comes to hurricanes tropical storms and other rare weather events they come along so rarely that sometimes people don't have a good idea of what they're really all about. We also talked about the need to frequently assess your roof condition and be aware that you may need to replace it, it'll reduce storm damage if you're hit by a storm in your area. Also talked about some of these newer patterns in the hurricanes that we've seen in recent years, especially with these slower moving storms and a lot of impacts moving fairly well inland as well. Hey, don't miss out on part two of this podcast with Eleanor Kitzman, where she'll give some insights on how to deal with trees. You know, tree falls in our communities can have an enormous impact during storms and she has some good insights on how to deal with them. Also some bigger picture expertise from Eleanor on areas that we're doing well with disaster resiliency and areas where we can use improvement. All that coming up in part two of this special podcast with Eleanor Kitzman. It's been great to visit with you, all of our faithful listeners, on the GeoTrek podcast sponsored by CNC Catastrophe and National Claims.